Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome back. Good morning, Nia. Morning. Um, so we're doing our follow-up episode from last time. So last time we talked about big characters and uh, their sort of um, the effect they have on public life. And uh, I, I feel like in order to be fair and balanced, <laughs> um, we should, sorry, I can't help it. They, <laughs> they entertain me so much with that concept. Um, I think in order to be fair and balanced, we also have to talk about the people you've never heard of or the people you barely hear of that have done these sort of what I think of as exemplar work, right? That they are in the trench every day doing what needs to be done. And so I wondered if we could talk about them today. Be happy to. Yay. So, um, so now I'm going to put Bill on the spot again. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't tell listeners. So we, we have Bill Newman back again for this episode. He's joined Augie and I um, uh, as a genius in the political science department. One of the geniuses. We have many. Um, and By the way, uh, listeners, if, uh, if you uh, don't know Bill, uh, and if you're not taking class with him, uh, one, you should try to take class with him. But yes. two, uh, he teaches uh, a lot of good stuff uh, in the political science department from the presidency to U.S. foreign policy, to terrorism, um, and, and, and he does it uh, uh, w- with a, a kind of uh, attitude and a, uh, uh, an enthusiasm um, that I've often tried to replicate. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, do so. Um, uh, and he's it, one of my favorites because he loves citations as much as I do. Yeah. <laughs> Ask my students how much they love the fact that I love citations. And he teaches them passionately. And I'm like, yes, yes, cite your source. I do have, there's two ways to think about the range of courses I teach, right? One is to say it's eclectic or the other is to say it's weird. And it's basically because when I first started working here, I was an adjunct and they said, can you teach this? And my answer was just, yes no matter what it was. Yeah, because you want to keep the <laughs> can, job, right? Can you teach political basket weaving? No problem. I wanted to eat, things like that. So I just said, yes, yeah, sure, whatever it is, I can do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you can, your students love you. And they, when I when they come to the library and talk about me, I mean, talk to me, they talk about you in fabulous terms. So <laughs> who is, when you think of an exemplar um, who's been in public service, who do you think of? Who's the person who first rises to your mind? The first person I think of is Elliot Richardson. Right. Okay, I'm, I'm think that I'm going to speak for many, many listeners when I say, who? Okay, <laughs> right, right. So uh, actually, I've been thinking about this, and maybe this will spur me to do it, is, uh, uh, you know, you can buy those uh, large sort of cardboard heads of people, and you see them at sporting events. It's a, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to get one of Elliot Richardson, I'm going to put it in my office um, near my stand up Teddy Roosevelt, but I think I need an, an Elliot Richardson face uh, for my office to, to always remind me to, to do the right thing. Yes. Right? To, 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 to remember why, uh, why you're in public service, if you're in public service. All right, so here's a guy, 
uh, who uh, the ultimate act that makes him an exemplar is during Watergate, right? So we'll get get to that in, in just, a, just a second because he's one of the guys who did the right thing during Watergate, right? Okay, they, well, they were kind of thin on the ground. Yeah, especially <laughs> being someone who's... <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to be ugly, but here lately I've been obsessive, obsessively watching YouTube videos about this. For some reason, it's come up in my feed, a lot of Watergate videos. And I've been watching the videos of the cover-up. I'm like, everybody was involved in this. Practically, like, Checkers was involved in this. Like, everything, everyone... Yes. In yeah. the White House, everyone anywhere near the White House was all involved and up in this grill. And, and Richardson was one of the people in the administration who did the right thing, uh, which ultimately led to discussions of Nixon's impeachment. But I'm getting ahead of myself, just so, okay. uh, just a little background. Uh, the point about Richardson is that he was a pro's pros. He, pro's pro. He's one of these guys who managerial and in terms of integrity and in terms of knowledge, he kept get putting into positions because people said, this guy is brilliant and he'll solve problems, but solve problems in, in a, in a legal way. Not as a, <laughs> he'll he'll a solve problems. Problem. He'll just shoot everybody in the room. <laughs> right. okay, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. He'll find <laughs> a way to make it work. Right. Legally. And in a way that, that everybody uh, will be satisfied with. So, uh, you know, lawyer, uh, Supreme court clerk for uh Justice Frankfurter, uh, various jobs in the federal government, was Assistant Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare under Eisenhower, Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, Attorney General of Massachusetts, uh, then he becomes Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs for Nixon. And this is in Nixon's first term where Henry Kissinger, the National Security Advisor, and William Rogers, the Secretary of State, hate each other. They're not even talking to each other. So the functioning of foreign policy is breaking down because the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor are barely even talking. And you need, at least my research suggests that, that you need some kind of informal process where people actually get together and iron out the disagreements between different departments. These things work better. Get together for breakfast. And that's the way people generally do it now is your key foreign policy advisors get together for breakfast once a week and iron out all the problems. And then they smooth it out, and then you get an actual functioning foreign policy process. And that, but, I assume, also leads to a unified message and that sort of... Right, right. You know, okay. It, it's the kind of smoothing stuff that you need to do behind the scenes or else everything kind of collapses. Well, Rogers, the Secretary of State, and Kissinger's a National Security Advisor, can't do it. So Kissinger is meeting with Richardson once a week to iron all this stuff out. I have to say that of those two, I don't know that I could have breakfast with Kissinger either. <laughs> Richardson's Kiss, the kind of Kissinger is, is- I can do that. Obnoxious. Well, anyway, that's a whole separate issue we'll get into. Okay. So, and he's also chair of something that nobody ever talks about, the Undersecretaries Committee, right? Which was an interagency committee that actually created implementation plans for the Nixon administration. And it was the committee that allowed things to actually function, right? So the president might decide, let's get rid of all the sanctions on China. Well, how do you do that? Hand it to Richardson and his committee and he irons out the process for doing it. Does that committee still exist? Uh, no, that was, uh, these committees always wind up changing. 
depending oh. on the province, but it was a lot like uh, Eisenhower's Operations Coordination Board. Uh, but it was run by Richardson and nobody ever talks about it. In fact, at the Nixon Library, there isn't even a list of meetings. <gasps> there are just a handful of boxes and you know, nobody's ever come up with a list. I have the only list as far as I know of the meetings. I just sat down and took three or four days and went through all the boxes and wrote everything down. Right. How, how is there not even a list? Okay, that's uh, a separate issue, which I'm going to yeah, ask you about. <laughs> At the end of this podcast, I do want to ask you about visiting libraries, because okay. I would like you to take a couple minutes and tell us how to go about that. Oh, sure, sure. Well, because I know you've been to all of them, I think. Um, I've been, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to we'll that later. We'll talk about that. Give you, yep. give you the, the full list. So uh, he's an undersecretary of state for political affairs. That's kind of the number two uh, within, within the State Department at the time. And then uh, he moves around uh, a little bit. He becomes uh, the secretary of health, education, and welfare because there are some problems at the at the agency, so Nixon moves him over there and becomes a cabinet secretary there. Then Nixon wins in a landslide in 1972 and thinks to himself, I'm gonna create the dream team for my administration. I'm gonna put Richardson as secretary of defense, right? So from health, education, welfare to defense. <laughs> I, Seems a little bit of a leap, but okay. Right? But, but, but that's clearly what they think of him is as a fixer. Right. He can go to a place and fix the, the problems and smooth it out and make it work. So, right? So he's got the reputation of fix it. Right. It's managerial competence. Okay. Right. Uh, so even though that's a weird set of skills, I mean, it's the same set of skills he's applying it in a different department. Right, right. Okay. Now, talk about the notion of a fixer. He's only Secretary of Defense from January to May of 1973 because Watergate hits uh. and Nixon says, I need somebody at the Department of Justice <laughs> to deal with this for me. And he sends Richardson to Justice Richardson becomes Attorney General. So Richardson this whole time is just saying, yes, sir. Uh, yeah. I need you yeah. to serve as blah, blah, blah. Yes, sir. I yeah. need you to serve as... So I serve at the pleasure of the president, right? Like it's a that kind of mentality of the president it, it, has asked me to solve a problem. I am going to do what the president has asked me to do. And, right. and remember too, Nia, this is a different era in regards to uh, uh, public administration. I mean, the exemplar I'm going to mention uh, after Bill is done is uh, William Ruckel's house. Ruckel's house has a similar type of career. Okay. They're lawyers by education and training, but they're known as, okay, good bureaucrats. You know, Bill used the phrase, a pro's pro. So right. we actually had an era in American public administration where um, whether you knew defense or the attorney general, uh, uh, law enforcement or health education and welfare was less important than could you run a big sprawling bureaucracy and solve whatever problem or problems existed within that bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. Because, okay. the, because the career civil servants had the subject matter expertise, but you wanted people running the agency 
who could be trusted to run the agency. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and, and you don't see as much of that currently because people get pigeonholed or siloed, right? Oh, you're good on health. Well, you must stay there your entire career. No, a lot of who Bill and I admire as exemplars, these were folks who were quick studies, who knew how to run things, okay? And they knew that they had multiple masters, okay? You know, Congress, the president, and the courts, right? And so it's a different kind of mindset, okay? And Elliot Richardson's a really good example of this. Well, yeah, because at my count, this is job four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that's a, that's a lot in five years. If, if you did that in regular service, people would say that you were, that you uh, were a butterfly, that you couldn't land on anything long enough. But clearly what that means is, no, no, I'm going to pull you out and put you where I think you can fix things. And then when they're running smoothly enough, I'm going to pull you out and put you somewhere else to right. fix things. So I'm fascinated. So at this point, he realizes Watergate's going to be, Nixon realizes Watergate, Watergate might be a problem. Right. So he he may be thinking that he's putting Richardson uh, in the Department of Justice to protect the president, but Richardson's job is uh, loyalty to the Constitution, right? right. So, the oath is to the Constitution, not right. the person. Right. So, uh, to make a, a that's where it gets a long story short. You've got Watergate. Uh, there's a break in at Democratic National Committee headquarters. Uh, it was actually to fix the listening device, not to install the listening device. <laughs> <laughs> just something about that. So they got caught in June of 1972 fixing the listening device, right? So it had already right. been there. And the thing is, they were all wearing like suits and they were, when they got caught, the police just happened across it. Like, hey, is anybody here? Kind of like it was a, it, when they say it was a third rate burglary, it was kind of a third rate operation, sort of. Like it was. The nature of the Watergate building. Right. If you ever seen the Watergate building, it's sort of this S shaped building. So you can be standing in one side of the building and you can see lights in a window of another side of the building. And that's how they caught them. They saw the flashlight you know, from across essentially this little curved area and said, hey, you know, that's that's not right, because that's not me. <laughs> I'm the security guard, the one with the flashlight. Right. So that's how they found these guys. Uh, well, so the investigations begin. And at one point during the investigation, right, it's revealed that there are tapes of Nixon conversations in the Oval Office, right? And one of those tapes becomes the smoking gun of, of Nixon essentially talking about, about paying off the burglars to keep them quiet. But at first, you just know there's tapes. Well, we want to hear what's on the tapes. Well, and Nixon taped in part because he wanted to have things against his enemies, right? Like he like many presidents before him taped things so that they could have records of people saying things and doing things and that kind of stuff. For, for Nixon, the, the way he describes it is that, you know, he's going to write his memoirs. And so he wants a record. Ah, okay. Okay. So, but I think in previous episode, we mentioned that it was not unusual for presidents to tape mm -hmm. various 
think goings on in the Oval Office. Right. But right. in this particular instance, there are these tapes. So what does Elliot Richard? I'm sure that he goes home and he bangs his head against a desk for a couple of hours thinking, are you kidding me? Well, it's it gets to Archibald Cox. He's the special prosecutor. So he's investigating this for the Justice Department. And in that time, he's hired by the Justice Department to investigate Watergate. Well, Elliot Richardson but, is his boss. Okay, but Elliot Richardson didn't hire him? Um, well, Elliot Richardson, I guess Richardson chose him. But yeah, Richardson, time, uh, Richardson made the recommendation. Yeah, Nixon, okay. yeah Nixon was getting pressure from uh, members of Congress to appoint to uh, uh, a, a, a special prosecutor um, and uh, turned to Richardson and Richardson said, well, you know, if you want somebody who is known as a straight shooter, you hire law professor Archibald Cox from Harvard Law School. I'm surprised Nixon let him hire somebody who was a straight shooter. Well, again, except it would have looked weird if he hadn't, right? It would have looked like if you're trying to cover up, you need to try to look innocent. Well, so you need to say things like, go ahead, investigate me, even though that's really not what you want people to do. Well, but also think about Nixon as a person, as a president, okay? He thought he was smart, as smart as or smarter than Northeastern elites, okay? Yeah. I mean, and, and if there's anybody who would represent Northeast elites, it would be Archibald Cox. Oh. So Nixon didn't think he had anything to worry about because, you know, I'm a smart guy, okay? And well, and if the president does it, it's not illegal. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? I mean, wasn't that his eventual argument? Was at least that's what he said to Frost. Was well, if the president does it, it's not illegal. And Frost's face does a thing where you're like, look at him. He's feeling all the feelings right now. Like, what are you talking about? And the law still applies. And what did I just actually hear you say that? So anyway, so we're at the point where Archibald Cox wants these tapes. Right. He wants the tapes. And Nixon's attitude is, I'm never going to giving up those tapes. That's it. And he decides in October 1973 uh, that Cox needs to be fired. So he sends uh, Alexander Haig, who's his chief of staff at the time. Oh, Alexander Haig, don't worry. I'm completely in charge while President Reagan is, is in surgery. Wait, that Alexander what? Haig, yeah. <laughs> right. Same dude. And by the way, a lot of these characters get um, resurrected um, across the 1970s and 80s. Oh, I like yeah. to think of them as recycled. Yes. It's very green. <laughs> it's a very green thing that the Republican Party was doing was recycling its people. The Democratic Party does it too. Um, by, the way, okay. by, by the way, Nia, keep that in mind because our next exemplar is uh, uh, Bill Ruckel's house um, and he gets recycled uh, also in the 1980s. <laughs> okay. No one ever disappears. <laughs> so, so I'm not giving you the tapes and you can't make me. Haig goes down to Richardson and says, fire Archibald Cox. And Richardson says, no, he's doing a fine job. I'm not going to fire him. And Haig says, Whoa. your commander in chief has given you an order. Right. Haig had been General Haig. Uh, actually still General Haig at the, at the time. Uh, and Richardson says, no, thank you. I resign. Really? Yep. Yes. 
that's it. And he's then, the one. Okay. So, cause I've been watching the, isn't that the something about the massacre Saturday night massacre? Right. Where, yeah. where it keeps bouncing from person to person to person who will say, I'm not going to fire him. I'm not going to fire him. I'm not going to fire him. And then it finally ends up with justice Bork. Um, yeah. Well, hold on. Cause we got someone in the middle. So oh, okay. Richardson resigned. So now the deputy attorney general, and I'll, I'll let Augie do that because this, this gets to your guy. William Ruckel's house, okay, is then uh, ordered by Alexander Haig, Haig to file, fire Archibald Cox. And Ruckel's house does the exact same thing as Elliot Richardson. He refuses and he resigns. So did that happen in the same day? Same night. Same night, Saturday night. Okay, so it really all was in one night. That's not a misnomer. No, same night. So same night. The, the the person- so, Okay, so wait, so this is how the night goes. Elliot Richardson, I'm gonna need you to fire Archibald Cox. No, sir, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna do that. He's doing a fine job. I said, fire him. No, sir, I'm gonna resign. Okay, fine, I accept your resignation. Calls. Rick, Ruckel's house. Ruckel, Ruckel's house and says, you are now the attorney general. I'm going to need you to fire Archibald Cox. And Ruckel's house says, I'm in the middle of dinner. I'll call you back in five minutes. He calls him back and says, I'm not going to do this. Right first, because first he calls, I'm sure Elliot Richardson says, did you really just resign? Like, because at that point, probably nobody's trusting anybody. Richardson says, yep, I resigned because I'm not going to fire Cox. This is my imagination. And then Ruckel's house calls Haig back and says, I'm not going to fire Cox either. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I'm resigning. Right, this is October 20th. And yep. then 23rd. a third phone call gets made yeah. to a new attorney general who the is person, now. The person Bork, who is third, right? third in command at the Justice Department is the solicitor general. And at that time, the solicitor general was Robert Bork. Um, and Robert Bork said, um, I will fire Archibald Cox. Yep. Is that why his nomination for the Supreme Court met with such? No, no. Complaint? I mean, no, what a lot of people don't understand is Robert Bork, um, uh, after serving uh, the rest of the Nixon administration and even into the G President Ford administration, uh, went back to law or uh, went back to teaching at law school at Yale, and then was appointed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, where the vote was almost unanimous in approval. The reason why he gets rejected for the Supreme Court is that the Democrats made a convincing case um, that he was too he would be too extreme as a Supreme Court justice. And the justice he was replacing was one of the swing voters on the then Supreme Court, uh, Lewis Powell. So okay. the Democrats recognized we're going from a moderate to an extreme conservative, and we need to paint him as an extreme conservative. But what he did during the Saturday Night Massacre did not harm Robert Bork's career. Well, did it, did it harm um, Elliot Richardson's career? Bill? I think after that, uh, he goes back into, into uh, private law practices and uh, he's seen as what he is today. I mean, this is a guy who uh, 
who changed American history by essentially revealing what Nixon was, because you get uh, his resignation, Rucker's House resignation, Bork fires a special prosecutor, and that's a Saturday night. Monday morning, the House begins discussing impeachment. And that's where everything turned against hey, but by the way, Nia, it makes uh, him look like I get rid of people who are getting too close to the truth. Like yes. it's, yeah. and yeah. I get rid of people who won't do the wrong thing because I want them to. You know what I mean? Like it, it says two things about Nixon. It says that Nixon doesn't want to tell, reveal the truth to the to the special prosecutor, but it also says that he has no respect for people who have ethics and honor and say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to just fire this guy. Like, that's not okay. Yeah, it's the rule of law. I mean, I mean at that point, it, it became very apparent to the American public that Nixon basically wanted yes people um, working for him. Well, and he believed he was above the law. Yeah. 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 And by the way, uh, postscript on Elliot Richardson, he actually became the secretary of another cabinet position in the Ford administration. Secretary of Commerce. That's right. I forgot about that. He is he is one of four, he is one of two people who's held four different cabinet secretary <laughs> positions. Bill, do you know the other one? Okay, so H E W Defense. Commerce and justice. Okay, so who's the who's the other who's the only other person who has been the secretary of four different cabinet positions? Do you know it? Oh, you know, I you probably know tease it out after like thirty minutes, but no. <laughs> George Schultz. That's right. Labor. Labor. Every state. And. Uh, Treasury? Right, Labor, Treasury, State. I got three. How about defense? Oh, was he the Secretary of Defense? I think I think Schultz was Labor, Treasury, State, and Defense. I don't think it was Defense, because I pretty much know all, that's the one cabinet department I can name like everybody in a row. But I don't know what Nia, the Nia's looking it up. Nia's looking okay, it up. Look it up. <laughs> No C. Oh. In Schultz. There we go. That's uh, it. Okay. <laughs> Look, there's Alexander Haig again. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Alexander Haig. Um, okay. So state. Four cabinet positions, the other being Elliot Richardson. So is it not going to tell us? Really? Oh, I forgot he was involved in Theranos. Okay, we'll have to go back up and read the. All right, y'all carry on and I'll figure okay. it out. Wait, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of the Treasury, Office of Management and Budget. Oh, maybe more important than a cabinet position. <laughs> um, and then Secretary of State... I may have been using uh, counting OMB as a, as a cabinet position. My apologies. Yep. Yep. So uh, 
one thing I want to mention about Richardson, and then then I will will stop about Richardson. Uh, but right after Nixon uh, was reelected, and this massive landslide, right? He wins forty nine states against McGovern in nineteen seventy two. Richardson sits down with him uh, and says, basically, uh, Mr. President, you're often angry. Uh, you're often uh, trying to go after your enemies and you don't have to do that anymore. You won 49 states. Yep. The American people are rooting for you. They like you. Even your political enemies are hoping that you'll succeed. So this is the moment when you can turn around and be magnanimous. This is the, the moment that you can show uh, your, your graciousness and you can go ahead and say, I've achieved more than anybody really has, has ever achieved. And now you can go ahead and relax a little bit and do all the things that you wanted to do as president and not you know, try to destroy your enemies. And Richardson tells this story in an interview and says that Nixon's response was just to stare at him. <laughs> <laughs> like, and says, I don't think you got are it. Are you done talking yet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I imagine Nixon, wow. Nixon's response is like uh, the response you get from a dog when, yes. you say, when you say something to it and they don't get it. Well, yeah. yeah, when they when you use a command they haven't heard before and they're like, I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, they cock their head. What and is, what is it like, that you want me to do? Their ears go up a little bit like, Whoo? Yeah, well, and explaining why this is a carpet, not a wee wee pad. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and they're like, I don't, what are you talking about? <laughs> As it turns out, wherever I, wherever I go is a wee wee pad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and Nixon carried through with that as well. Oh my goodness. Okay, so we like Elliot Richardson. I didn't realize that's who that was, but I like him. Um, I agree with you completely in your choice. He's excellent. So, Augie, you want to tell me about Rickles House? Ruckles House. William Ruckles, Ruckles, Ruckles House. House. Okay, so Ruckles House, uh, uh, in many ways, uh, part of his um, claim to fame is like Elliot Richardson, as we just discussed, um, uh, because he too uh, resisted uh, the president's admonition that Archibald Cox get fired uh, during the Watergate investigation. But one of the reasons why I like uh, Bill Ruckel's house um, is for the reason, again, that I mentioned just a few moments ago, and it's very similar to Elliot Richardson. Um, he held multiple executive branch positions. He first went to work and again, another commonality with Elliot Richardson, <laughs> he went to work for the federal government uh, in the Nixon administration. Uh, after he lost uh, the US Senate race in the state of Indiana, which by the way, um, is a commonality with another one of me and Bill's uh, favorites, um, uh, uh, Dick Luger. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they both lost to uh, Birch Bay <laughs> uh, in the state of Indiana. Uh, but nevertheless, so Ruckel's house goes to work in the Justice Department. And he gets on Nixon's radar because he was effective at uh, diffusing Vietnam War protests outside the White House. Okay. He did it in such a way 
so that the protesters could still protest, but to get them away from the White House, which was upsetting Nixon. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Apparently, the views from the White House can be very upsetting for the occupants. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Maybe they need more bushes and trees or something. So an example of no good deed goes unpunished, Nixon says, well, if he's good at that kind of uh, difficult situation, I want him to be in charge of our growing environmental initiative. And he appoints Ruckel's house as the head of the nascent Environmental Protection Agency. <laughs> Which I think people forget that Nixon signed it into law right? again you get these larger than life characters who do these things but turn out to do sometimes really good things for people as far as like the regular people because yes now and, it's less likely that our rivers will catch fire it's not it, impossible yeah but it's less likely than it was prior to having an epa and by the way bill ruckel's house had absolutely no environmental knowledge whatsoever <laughs> well but if he didn't need it i mean it, it going to bill's point if what you're good at is management mm -hmm. yes. then it may not be that you actually need to know about the thing you said earlier that's what that's what middling level bureaucrats are for yeah. right is to know the actual subject matter what you need is a person who can say oh you want me to build an agency i can do that that's that's a different skill set. And um, uh, 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 Ruckel's house was uh, in charge of the EPA for three years, and it was, shall we say, a very eventful three years. Okay, cleaned up water pollution in major cities like Cleveland and Detroit. You know, see Nia's reference about sit, uh, rivers burning. Okay, uh, particularly outside the uh, city of Cleveland. Uh, well, it was an industrial problem, right? Like, yeah. did anybody notice the river's on fire? Yeah, that happens all the time. Like, wait, wait, what? That shouldn't be a thing. Uh, he reduced air pollution, convinced the automobile industry to reduce um, uh, their uh, the emissions from automobiles by 90% in five years. Good. Okay. I mean, he got a lot of stuff done. Was Did the first Earth Day happen during his... That tenure, what were the years of his tenure? Uh, 70 to 73. So yes. Okay. okay. But as another example, at least in the Nixon administration, if you do good work, then we're going to go ahead and put you in a potentially <laughs> bad oh, Well, you've made that all good. So now I'm going to put you over here in charge of this thing that's on fire. Right. Good luck. He puts Ruckel's house in the Justice Department and makes him Elliot Richardson's <laughs> deputy attorney general. So that's another in response to Watergate yes. move? Yes. Okay, is to take another person who is a solid bureaucrat and put them... I mean, because... And a fixer. And yeah, Richardson and Ruckel's house reputations were sterling, right? I mean... And it sounds like... Two that maintained that as opposed to pretty yeah. much everyone else involved in Watergate whose reputations were completely trashed. So uh, after he resigns uh, from the Justice Department uh, uh, after the Saturday Night Massacre, um, he goes to D.C. 
um, or he leaves DC. He's working in private practice. Um, and then he gets a call in 1983 from the Reagan administration. The Reagan administration's first director of the EPA, Ann Gorsuch, Buford, okay, basically ran the EPA into the ground, okay? Um, she refused to spend money on uh, enforcement uh, actions. Um, uh, there was allegations of um, uh, money going to private sector firms who had no business doing environmental work. It was a disaster. And by the way, for listeners, if Gorsuch as a name sounds familiar, hmm. she was the mother of current Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch. Aha. <laughs> All those are not visited upon the children but, on this podcast. But but listeners, wait for the kids to screw up on their own. We don't yeah. assume. But listeners, if you want to know why people rail about DC elites and insiders, right? This is one of the reasons why. Right. right? I mean, you get what what you get dynasty type. Yes. But also the flip of that, which I'm going to take a moment and wax poetic about, is if you have families in which public service is a, a guiding principle, then you are going to get people in those families who continue in public service, for good or for bad, right? That's... Yeah. That, I mean, it. part of what the part of the reason you have Bushes in public service in many states across the nation is because Senior Bush, right, forty one, raised them with the idea of public service. You have right. been born into privilege, and you need to give back. Um, Kennedy's similar thing, right? Yeah. Other families similar, similar that in states there'll be families where that happens, where the state that's a known name in the family, that's a known family name because those people are encouraged generationally to serve. Yeah. So yep. if, you know, there's, there's a certain, um, I, I have a certain admiration for that in the sense of it's better than saying to your kids, Hey, free for all, you know, just go out and make even more money and live a crazy life. And, you know, that's where reality shows come from. Or you can say, right, like you can be the Hiltons or you can say to your kids, oh, heck no, you you have been born with a silver spoon and you need to do things to help other people and and you need to serve in some way. Uh, let me add, can I have one more thing that relates to that the students will, will, will be particularly interested in is it's also the aspect of internships, right? If you've already got it made as a family and you've already got connections, then you can actually get those unpaid internships. Right. Right. Whereas somebody else says, you know, I actually need a paid internship because I can't do my internship. I can't make a choice between my internship and food. Right. Right. So that's right. one of those problems that allows sort of the, the, if you want to put it in these terms, you know, the elites to stay elites because they get that experience where the average person has a much harder time. And I know this is a digression, but to Bill's point, it's why numerous scholars advocate 
that all Americans actually do a year or two of government service. Um, and one of the reasons why they mention it um, uh, or one of the justifications for it is so that people can get known and make connections in government. Well, and those services in most countries are paid. Well, yeah, that's a paid yeah, service. Yeah, like yeah. you, if yeah. you serve in the military in various countries, or if you serve in public service in various countries, in that what we think of as gap year, right? You graduate from high school and you mm -hmm. you serve your two years in the military or whatever. That's paid service, which also goes to Bill's point of you don't have to choose between clerking for a Supreme Court or eating, right? Like that's not right. right. And there's, I mean, whenever you hear about people's pedigree, things like that, oh, well, they clerked for, like you said, um, Richardson clerked for Frankfurt, right? Like that, that opens doors that don't get opened in any other way. Yeah. So I agree with y'all. I, it, yeah, it's complicated. Um, it would be nice if everybody who could serve, who, who wanted to serve, could serve. But I also don't know that, and this is a complete digression, so I'm only going to say it for a few seconds. I don't know that the founders expected that people would make a lifetime service out of, out of working for the federal government or the state's governments. I suspect that the founders thought you probably ought to go back to your farm and actually raise food, right? You ought to do things in your community and for your family that aren't so I don't know how many of them expected somebody to serve their life in public service and to be okay. in that system for 50, 60, 70 years. First of all, they didn't expect to live that long, but also, I mean, life expectancy was significantly shorter in colonial times than it is now, but also- I, I think we might have to make a, distinct, a distinction between civil service and elected office. Because right. Sorry. And yeah, yeah, right. Maybe, I mean, yeah. elected office. You're, yeah. you're right. I don't mean civil service. You're, yeah. you're correct. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, so, I take the point. That's that's right. So the EPA is a mess, right? <laughs> okay. um, and, and, and that's a statement that can be said a lot of the time. <laughs> and let's be very clear. Reagan didn't want to spend any valuable political capital on the EPA, but he was forced to because it was uh, such a disaster. Um, and um, it was advised by uh, a number of his uh, kind of sort of inner circle that they needed a fixer. And the fixer they picked was Ruckel's house. And he came in and in about three years, uh, restored the EPA's reputation among environmentalists. Can I just say he must have been so pissed? You know what I mean? Like, I've already done this once. Yeah, right. Don't make me come in here and do this again. Don't make me pull the EPA over and have a discussion with y'all, right? Like, that's that's where we are at this point is, like, well, but, dude, but, come on. But the other thing that Ruckel's house did, and one of the reasons why I, I always admired him, was he restored the agency's reputation and relationships with Congress and the courts. Okay, um, and Ruckel's House has spoken about how um, executive branch agencies have three masters and they always run into problems when they ignore any one or multiple of those masters. It's a difficult task 
but they have three masters, the legislative branch, uh, the chief executive, and the courts. And if you think about somebody like a Richardson or a Ruckel's House or some of the other people that Bill and I could probably spend another couple hours talking about, Bob Cutler, Dick Luger, okay, et cetera, uh, Brent uh, uh, Scowcroft. Uh, yeah, Scowcroft, okay. Um, these are figures who understand that what agencies do um, serve vital functions for each of those three masters. I mean, right. that's why the modern administrative state is so unique. It does executive branch work, legislative branch work, and judicial work. And that requires a kind of skill set, particularly among its leadership, that I'm... I'm uh, that takes us back to our first season in Unicorns. Yes. Where you have to have a unicornic-like set of skills that you can manage, that you can manage the president's demands that are often insane, then you can manage Congress's demands that are often insane, and you can stay out of the courts as much as possible. Or if you are in the courts that you can present legitimate le legitimate basis for what you've done, right? So that is, that's, I agree with you. And, and if anyone can manage that, and it sounds like these guys managed it multiple times. Yeah, right. That's, that's, that goes above and beyond. That's a really amazing um, application of a specific skill set. And it would be really nice if we could figure out a way to find those people in the population and train them or hone their skills so that they were sort of a pool of people that you could call on as a president. Because I think sometimes presidents are stuck with not having a good idea of who that, of who the Richardson is or who the Ruckels House is in your that you really need, you know what I mean? And so you end up recycling the same people and exhausting them because it's gotta be exhausting after a while to be in charge of all these big things, which is why they retire into private life. I mean, you see George Schultz has retired into private life, right? Like that's a, I imagine it's, it's, it's crazy exhausting. And I know people will say to me, yes, that's what the graduate programs at these various institutions are for, right? Like that's, that's why you have the graduate programs at Georgetown and whatever else. But also that talent exists. Someone in our student body has that talent. That they do. Someone in the political science student body. They all do. Public administration. Or there you go. They all do. And they just need <laughs> all to, of our students. <laughs> but they need to be honed and trained and given the opportunity to do it and then make mistakes and recover from those mistakes. And I don't know how that, how we build a system where they're able to do that. Well, but it also requires a, a certain type of mentality, right? Um, Bill, I don't know uh, if you would agree with this assessment. So um, correct me um, if you think otherwise, but when the three of us were coming up with a list of exemplars, one of the things that really struck me um, is that almost all of them, okay, if you place them on an ideological spectrum, <laughs> were considered moderates, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. Um, but they also believed in government. They didn't rail 
about how government is bad or big government is bad or that there is a quote unquote deep state. They believed that government was necessary and that government could be a force of good. And should be. Yeah, I agree, agree 100%. Uh, absolutely. Richardson wrote a memoir, which you know I, I bought when it came out and thought, ooh, this must be phenomenal. But it was basically Richardson. I'm not going to tell you anything. You know, no secrets, no revelations, you know, none of that. Just tell you, here are the challenges we faced, and here's what we did. And I think this worked out pretty well. You know, and the title of the book was Reflections of a Radical Moderate. Right? You know, just, just perfect. Well, and I like that he didn't gossip after. Yeah. Because he could have, you know, he could have, because you know that he had stories to tell. You know, he was in the room when stuff was said, it's like, oh, you think that's bad. Hold my beer. Right. But he didn't, he didn't do that, which is good for him. I mean, some of the other people on our list, um, uh, Dick Thornburg, former governor of Pennsylvania, uh, who was, uh, excuse me. Tom Ridge. Yeah, Tom Ridge. Uh, Terry Sanford, former governor of North Carolina. I mean, he was a Democrat in the deep South, North Carolina, who went ahead and said, my state should desegregate. Yep. And he paid, he paid with that politically. He yes. paid for that politically. Yes. But he did the right thing. And Richardson paid for it politically and so did Ruckel's house, right? Like, yes. Okay, well, then I will accept your resignation because I'm not even sure. Do you think they offered their resignation or do you think Haig said, okay, well, then I accept your resignation. Bye. Oh, no, like, no, no. Both of them, both of them offered their resignations. Okay. They yeah. weren't fired. No, but, but they also understood that their job was to serve at the pleasure of the president. And quite obviously, they were no longer pleasing the president. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, but then again, at that point, nothing was pleasing President Nixon. He he could see. I I think I fully believe that he knew that it was that it was coming to an end, right? That he knew it was over, and he was just trying to stave it off as long as he could. Because I, mean, I I don't know about that, Nia, because. A week before the Supreme Court, Supreme Court heard the Watergate tapes case, Nixon actually held a press conference where he said, I may not comply with the Supreme Court if they rule against me. <laughs> I mean, he and, and, and if it wasn't for the fact that a bunch of Republican members of Congress came to the Oval Office and said, hey, Mr. President, articles of impeachment will be filed, filed by the House. And if it gets to the Senate, you will be found guilty. It was only then that Nixon resigned. And even at that point, there were people in the White House who weren't quite sure if Nixon was going to resign or not. Yes. When he was writing up uh, the speech, now the small speech to resign, people weren't quite sure if he was going to say, I'm going to fight this to the end, or if he was going to resign. Ah, what a mess. Bill, do you have any other takeaways before we conclude uh, uh, about um, either common characteristics or lessons that we can take from, uh, we only got to two of our exemplars. Uh, and again, I think Bill and I could probably spend another two or three hours talking about them. But do you have any other takeaways uh, for our listeners? 
I, I think you kind of hit it because uh, there are people, well, they're not going to be ideological and they're going to have a sense whether they're Republicans or Democrats that government has an important place in American life. And, and for them, Republicans or Democrats, these kind of uh, people are thinking, you know, all right, I'm a Republican, which means I think smaller, smaller, effective, important government. Right. And if you're a Democrat, you're saying, yeah, slightly bigger, you know, effective, important government. <laughs> right. But you're and and you can work for either political party if you've got somebody who's you know, somewhat in the middle. You have Democrats who could work for George Herbert Walker Bush. Right. right? Or Republicans who work for Bill Clinton or, or Obama. Right. And they can say, you know, there's a job to do and it needs to be done. And I think I know how to do it. And, and so they're they're not. Uh, they're not revolutionaries, right? They don't walk in again saying there's a deep state or everything's got to be changed. Um, and, uh, and usually they don't run for office at times, uh, you know, particularly in polarization times. They're going to get less, uh, fewer people. It's like the old liberal Republicans who kind of disappeared. And the, the value of all those old liberal Republicans was really important to, to the functioning of the United States and the prevention of polarization. And when that group kind of disappeared, I think we, we all kind of lost something. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, thank you. That that makes it, um, that helps me know who I'm looking for um, <laughs> and who I can watch in the next administration for these kinds of people. That's something that we as listeners um, and, and watchers of political science or, or of politics, can try to say, okay, but who here is doing the middle ground work that just needs to get done? And it's just a matter of, like, it sounds to me like it's a matter of size, not a matter of integrity, how much government, but not that the government should be effective and work for the people. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was looking at the uh, slate of uh, nominees that President Biden put up for various cabinet positions, uh, and I've had people ask me, what do you look for? You know, you study this stuff, Augie. And I'm like, I look for, you know, what's their experience? What kind of jobs have they done? Um, are they overtly ideological? Uh, or do they understand that the agency they've been nominated to run has a particular job to do? And do they know how to do it? Um, I mean, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, and, you know, whether or not they have a particular policy or ideological axe to grind in somebody's back is irrelevant to me, right? You know, I want to know that uh, uh, the head of the National Security Agency um, has experience protecting the country's national security. I mean, <laughs> right? You know, when, when I saw that Janet Yellen was nominated to run the Treasury Department, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because she used right. to run the Fed, right? I mean, there's nothing that goes on in the nation's economy that's going to, you know, really surprise her. Yeah, like drive surprise her, Janet. Yeah, drive her off the rails. Yeah. Okay. Um, I should say surprise Secretary Yellen. I shouldn't say Janet, like I know her. I mean, um, okay. Mayor, Mayor Garland running the Justice Department. I'm like, yeah, that's a great choice. <laughs> so we'll. 
we'll see where it all plays yeah. out in the next little bit. And maybe we'll come back next year and revisit the, the question and see if any, um, if any more people have popped or at, at the rate you guys are going. I know you have lists. We could talk about it for weeks. Um, uh, Bill, will you come back with me in a few, in, in another brief episode and explain to us how to go to a presidential library? Uh, sure. I'd love to. Cool. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Neil. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.